Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Tori Cooper and Lindsey Clark of Human Rights Campaign, who talk about nationwide Republican legislative attacks targeting the LGBTQ community, trans youth, and drag show performers. Steph Black a feminist, abortion activist, and Washington, D.C.-based writer who discusses the Republican Party's legislative and legal effort to end access to abortion medications in all 50 states. And activist Fiona Mack and independent journalist Kat Morris, who assess the significance of the recent week of Stop Cop City protest actions demanding a halt to construction of Atlanta's militarized police training facility. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The scramble to tap into new clean energy sources after Russia's invasion of Ukraine is focusing attention on North Africa. Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco are rapidly building new solar farms to meet Europe's need to replace fossil fuel supplies once imported from Russia. Yet, the push for solar power is endangering the nomadic people of North Africa, whose access to traditional grazing land is threatened. The X-Lynx project would lay the world's longest underwater energy cable 2,300 miles between Morocco and European coastal nations, including Spain, Portugal, France, and southwest England. According to the Yale Environmental 360 online magazine, the $22 billion project could provide 8% of the United Kingdom's electricity. However, the pace of solar development across the Sahara has placed the rights of nomadic people at risk. Morocco may build their vast solar collection stations near the coastal city of Tantan, an area long inhabited by nomadic people who use large swaths of the Sahara to graze their sheep and camels. More than 30 nomadic tribes gather there annually for the largest religious, cultural, and trade fair in North Africa. After nearly 20 years of international negotiations, on March 4th, diplomats finally approved the framework of a new United Nations treaty to protect the high seas. The treaty would safeguard two-thirds of the oceans outside of national boundaries, which often are seen as the Wild West of the open seas. The treaty will provide a legal framework for establishing vast marine protected areas for wildlife and share genetic resources of the high seas. It will also establish a conference of nations that will meet periodically and enable member states to be held to account on issues such as governance and biodiversity. The treaty could aid in dealing with the overfishing crisis and the threat posed to marine life by industrial fishing fleets. The ocean ecosystems provide half the oxygen that humans and other species breathe and act as the planet's largest carbon sink, soaking up carbon dioxide and playing a critical role in mitigating the effects of climate change. In January, Montana Republican State Senator Keith Rieger drafted a resolution calling on Congress to change the tribal reservation system created under a treaty 
in 1851. The right-wing senator claimed the reservations were not being governed in the best interest of Native peoples or Montana citizens. The resolution was withdrawn after objections were raised by the Montana American Indian Caucus, who saw the legislation as deeply offensive and a threat to tribal sovereignty. But in these times reports that a more serious threat to Native sovereignty comes from the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Brackeen v. Holland that could overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act. The federal legislation signed into law in 1978 was put into place to protect Native children from being forcibly removed from their families on reservations. The law gave tribes exclusive jurisdiction on adoption and custody cases on tribal lands and mandates their involvement in adoption cases elsewhere. Should the Supreme Court's right-wing supermajority overturn the Child Welfare Act, it's not only adoption and foster cases that will be gravely affected, but the basic foundation of tribal sovereignty and congressional authority to deal with indigenous nations could be undermined. Observers in Indian country have also long believed that attacks on the Child Welfare Act are being undertaken to access natural resources, mineral rights, and more. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Republican Party-controlled states across the U.S. are enacting laws to restrict individual freedoms. These policies include denying access to reproductive health care and abortion services, suppressing the votes of communities of color, banning books, and censoring U.S. history. In recent years, however, Republicans have targeted another group of Americans with repressive legislation— passing laws making it illegal for transgender people to use public bathrooms and locker rooms, banning classroom instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity, outlawing gender-affirming care for transgender youth, and prohibiting drag show performances in public venues. In recent years, the ACLU has tracked more than 400 anti-LGBTQ bills across the U.S., primarily in GOP-controlled states. The bloody history of where hateful anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and laws can lead can be seen in the many hate crimes and mass shootings that have targeted this community across America. This dangerous rhetoric was on full display at this year's CPAC conference when far-right commentator Michael Knowles declared on March 4th that, quote, Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely, unquote. Your reporter spoke with Tori Cooper, Director of Community Engagement with the Human Rights Campaign's Transgender Justice Initiative, and Lindsay Clark, HRC's Senior Regional Field Organizer, who discussed nationwide GOP culture war attacks on the LGBTQ community and what the HRC is doing to fight back. It shows where the hearts and minds of the the opposition, the Republican Party, is right now. They're most focused on getting rid of drag 
the art form of drag and minimizing the existence of trans people than they are in actual things that help people. I've never known of a drag queen who has inflicted any harm on anyone. Um, I've never known where people, adults, who go to see drag shows are scarred for life. And so when we see that the opposition is focusing on issues that absolutely have so little relevance in most people's lives, rather than the issues, we see immediately that they are a no-issue party. With that being said, drag queens, all of these folks are human beings. And this rhetoric that you just mentioned to eradicate transgenderism and therefore extinguish transgender people, that is harmful. I always remind people that violence is not just with fists and guns, but it's also with words. And what they are doing is they're dog whistling to folks in their parties and folks who seek to do us harm that they have permission in a way to do it. Lindsay, I would ask you to please share with our audience any of the personal stories you've heard about how these repressive laws are impacting the lives of the LGBTQ community and especially trans youth. Trans people are are strong and resilient, and much stronger and more resilient than you can imagine. And, you know, we hear from folks all the time about the way that the environment that these conversations create um, is, is, you know, inhospitable. And in these places, in these states where they're having these conversations and they're passing these laws, um, it's easy to see why folks feel like they're no longer at home uh, in the place that they used to call home. I would say more than anything, we hear from parents of trans youth who are who are facing this unique challenge of trying to protect their children and trying to create an environment where their children can grow and thrive and uh, and live healthy lives. And we've seen families move from places like Texas. We've we've seen folks have to leave you know good jobs and good homes so that they don't have to choose between the life for their trans kid or um, or the or the alternative. Thank you for that, Lindsay. And, and Tori, you have any personal stories you'd like to share about how these uh, repressive laws have impacted individuals you've met or, or talked with? Well, I wish I could just pick one, but the truth is there's so many personal stories. Um, but I will share with you kind of an overarching theme. I think what we're seeing is we're having a what is a loud minority of folks. What they're saying is they don't think that the parents of transgender children know what's best. For their trans children. And they're, you know, they're attempting to control every aspect of these kids' lives through the court system, rather than simply getting to know them and listening to their parents and listening to their doctors and listening to common sense that says that, first of all, parents know often know what's best for their children, and that trans people are real and we're worthy of protections and we're worthy of medical care and and to live healthy and happy lives as well. Well, Lindsay, we're almost out of time, but I want to make sure to focus our attention now on fighting back. What's the strategy of the human rights campaigns and your allies across the country to fight against these repressive pieces of legislation that these Republican-controlled states are putting forward have voted on, and many of them have already been implemented. Yeah, I mean, we have we have folks across the country who are on the ground, who are mobilizing folks to talk to their legislators and show up at these state houses and testify on these bills, and um, you know, and hold their legislators accountable once they've passed. 
we have been continuously through the course of this legislative cycle, you know, meeting as a table to talk about the bills that are happening across the country and the ways that we're seeing patterns and the folks who are showing up uh, in, in one state or showing up in another state. And, um, you know, it is, a, it is, as you've said, a very concerted effort to pass these bills. And we have had a concerted effort to fight back against them. And we will continue that fight, including through the next election cycle. You know, in some of the places where we've actually seen uh, progress, where we've seen, um, you know, these, these bills not be able to be passed, not be able to be uh, signed, are places where we had big electoral victories to hold folks accountable who were uh, acting in anti-equality ways. And, and we will continue that work. That was Tori Cooper, Director of Community Engagement with the Human Rights Campaign's Transgender Justice Initiative, and Lindsay Clark, HRC's Senior Regional Field Organizer. Learn more about what the Human Rights Campaign is doing to combat GOP culture war attacks on the LGBTQ community by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After the Supreme Court overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling, ending federal protection for women's access to abortion, conservative justices said the issue would now be in the hands of state governments. But it's clear that many Republican politicians at both the state and federal level are now making a concerted effort to outlaw abortion in all 50 states, imposing minority rule. 21 GOP-controlled states recently threatened pharmacies with expensive lawsuits if they sell abortion medications in those states, which is the method used for more than half of all the nation's abortions. The Walgreens pharmacy chain appeared to cave into these threats and announced they would refuse to sell abortion pills in those 21 states, even states where these abortion drugs remain legal. At the same time, a right-wing federal judge in Texas We'll hear arguments from a conservative legal organization on March 15th, challenging the FDA's decades-old approval of the drug mifepristone, one of two medications used to terminate early pregnancies. If the judge rules in the plaintiff's favor and issues a preliminary injunction, access to abortion medications could be disrupted nationwide. Your reporter spoke with Steph Black, a feminist abortion activist and Washington, D.C.-based writer who discusses the Republican Party's legislative and legal effort to end access to abortion medications in all 50 states. Yes, my goodness, it's coming at us from, from all sides here. There's this assault on abortion medication. I think it really speaks to the original hypocrisy of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe. You know, Republicans said, you know, it needs to be up to the states. It's not even about abortion. It's about, you know, states being able to decide for themselves about abortion, which, of course, was not true, as we're, as we're seeing. It's, it's really about the systematic overturning of uh, legal abortion in all 50 states, D.C. and U.S. territories, and really by any means necessary. This next phase are key politicians and key lawmakers uh, pressuring private companies such as Walgreens to not dispense those kinds of medications. And then we have the continued judicial assault on abortion access uh, with this Texas case. The information about these things has not really been publicly available, um, and especially when it comes to the, the case in Texas that's looking to overturn the, the very foundation of the legality of being able to dispense mifepristone at all. 
it was a really underhanded move to schedule and sneak in this this hearing. Um, we've been waiting for for weeks to see if they were going to overturn the availability of Mifa Freestone Walgreens, especially, you know, a, a lot of these conversations that have sprung from this have happened because, like, for example, Governor Newsom, California, publicly said, like, that's it. Like, our contract is up with Walgreens in May, and we're just not going to renew the contract. And Walgreens had all these hush-hush conversations. There were, you know, internal policy memos released by the CEO um, that are really, all these conversations are really happening behind closed doors. Finally, I think the public is starting to understand really what's at stake here and the, 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 the loss of Mifa Prestone and what that will mean for people uh, who are seeking abortion care. In your recent article, Steph, The Other Front Line, you talk mm-hmm. about how the fight, the real battle lines about abortion and reproductive rights is really focused on these particular Republican-controlled states where there's all mm-hmm. manner of uh, restrictive laws in place. Just tell our listeners a bit about what is happening in these states in terms of resistance, Mm -hmm. the organizing of underground or clandestine treatment, hearkening back to the pre-Roe versus Wade era. What's happening now? Yeah, in terms of resistance, in some ways, it's the resistance that we've been doing for the last 50 years anyway. Parts of the South and in rural areas, they've always been post-Roe. Um, people of color, you know, black women, especially undocumented folks, minors, you know, youth, they've been post-Roe in many ways. They've been unable to access abortion care as with the Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal dollars from being spent on abortion care, for example. Um, those are really discriminatory practices and it's a discriminatory law. You know, it's, it's heartening to see so many people step up to the plate this year since this last, you know, that since last summer, since the decision but there have been collectives that have been really working on the front lines to make abortion accessible from opening their homes to patients who are traveling from out of state to driving patients. I'm one of those practical support volunteers. I drive patients that come from literally all over the country to D.C. to access abortion care. And then you have the people who are entering into the legally gray areas of support, making sure People know how to access information about self-managed abortion and where to source abortion medications online and how to pay for them. It's a dangerous, you know, unprecedented area that those activists are walking into, um, not knowing who is litigious and who's not, you know, depending on the state, depending on, you know, who's in a certain office in the state, who's going to press charges, who's going to investigate. States that have implemented citizen bounty hunters, right? So there's some really amazing work that does feel like the Jane Collective, like in Chicago, that really are connecting people through underground, questionably legal means to get the care that they need. Uh, but the people who who are able to access an abortion wind up having to travel thousands of miles, right, you know, round trip, are taking more time off work, are not able to care for the children that they already have in order to obtain care, and really trusting strangers to make sure that they can get the abortion that they want and that they need. So it's this really amazing chain of folks from the case managers at abortion funds to the drivers of patients, to the people who are donating to these places, to the clinic escorts who are getting patients through crowds of protesters, and really to the providers who have to check legal books before they can check their medical books, before they can provide necessary life-saving services to their own patients. It's been, it's been really wonderful to see folks step up. That was Steph Black, a feminist 
abortion activist and Washington, D.C.-based writer, whose column, The Activist Offering, appears in the Progressive magazine. Find more analysis and commentary on the ongoing Republican Party campaign to outlaw abortion in all 50 states by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On January 18th, a forest defender known as Tortuguita, or Tort, was killed by police, and six people were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism and misdemeanors in an urban forest on the outskirts of the city of Atlanta. Since the city approved construction of a $90 million militarized police training facility in the forest in 2021, a diverse coalition of activists have campaigned to stop the project that organizers call Cop City. In response to the police shooting death of Tortuguita and other arrests, a week of protest actions from March 4th to the 11th was organized, attracting people from across the country to join local opponents in the forest and in downtown Atlanta to demand the city cancel the police training facility contract. During the recent week of protests, police arrested 23 more people charging them with domestic terrorism after they claimed officers and construction equipment were attacked with Molotov cocktails, fireworks, and rocks on March 5th. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who participated in the week of actions, spoke with Connecticut residents Fiona Mack and Kat Morris, who both had traveled to Atlanta. Here they talk about their experience during the week of protest actions. We hear first from Fiona Mack who's been organizing against Cop City in Connecticut since last year. The beginning of the trip was really quite energetic and peaceful, definitely like felt more like a music festival. It started with a march that went very smoothly from Gresham Park into the woods um, with like pretty much no police presence, large number of people, and that transitioned pretty naturally into the music festival in the park that lasted late into the night Saturday, and then Sunday, it continued with the music, and there were lots of people also, like, setting up the camp in the woods and um, doing different sorts of related trainings, like a direct action training in the woods, a know your rights training downtown. So there were lots of different activities happening, including just, like, the ongoing music festival. Yeah, Sunday night, the situation definitely changed a lot following the rally at 5 p.m., and the direct action that took place, and then the subsequent police raid and riot in the music festival. That's kind of how the the vibe has shifted. And now there hasn't been like a major escalation again from the police, but there's been a heavy police presence at a lot of the events in the week of action, but not so much in the woods from what I understand until the, the raid on Leaf today, which is like not downtown, but not in the actual Atlanta forest either. What do you think is the significance of this effort to stop Cop City? Uh, the overall significance is definitely the way that it relates to so many different locations and so many different issues. Like, obviously, it's very pertinent to issues of environmental justice as well as um, 
police violence and brutality, police militarization. But then like you can also think about the implications of Cop City as more laws are passed related to abortion bans and drag bans as housing becomes more and more volatile how like more militarized police training for mass movements in urban centers like what implications that has for various different movements and like the wide response of people that have gotten into the fight because of that i think that there's definitely a feeling that victory is still possible and that cops are kind of scrambling and they they are getting desperate there's a general understanding that there is large support for the Stop Cop City movement and the number of people paying attention to Atlanta right now is a big part of the reason why police haven't been more violent and more aggressive. Mostly it's just been verbal threat. That was Fiona Mack, one of a group of Connecticut activists who traveled to Atlanta in early March for the week of action to stop Cop City. Next is Kat Morris a scholar activist and independent journalist who also traveled to Atlanta. I noticed that a lot of people were really just there to save the forest. I think that part of the narrative has been lost. I think a lot of the times it's just stop cop city. And I'm making that distinction specifically because of how it ties into the narrative that is shared that anyone who is a force offender, anyone who is um, in support of this movement, is a violent extremist, and I find that extremely concerning, particularly as it relates to environmentalists having their First Amendment uh, right, their freedom to assemble, their freedom of speech, um, and the freedom of press to be able to witness, bear witness to what's happening in real time without being threatened uh, with really life-altering charges that again, discourage people from using their First Amendment right, but also it prevents people from standing up for something that could have really strong ecological impacts for the Atlanta and DeKalb County community, as well as the overall planet. I think it's something that is extremely important with respect to the direction we're going in for like the decades to come, knowing everything that we know about climate change and how important everything we do right now is. I invite everyone to be really critical about the narratives that they're hearing about force defenders, um, particularly anything that challenges someone's right to assemble, someone's right to protest. I think we have to pay really close attention to what this means for Atlanta, because it may or may not be foreshadow for your own backyard. That was independent journalist Kat Morris, preceded by activist Fiona Mack, talking about their experience participating in protests against the construction of a militarized police training facility in Atlanta's urban forest. Learn more about the Stop Cop City campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. 
where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.